Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with the world's most interesting people in direct-to-consumer. I'm your host, Tim. So this is Series 4 of 2021, and I have the pleasure of meeting and chatting with a select group of impact brands to unpack their story, growth, and how they're adapting to the evolving digital and consumer landscape. On this episode, I chat with Aman Advani, co-founder and CEO of Ministry of Supply, a clothing brand that uses science to make the world's most comfortable clothing. The company was founded in 2012 with the mission to incorporate fundamental engineering and performance principles into clothing staples, ultimately building a wardrobe that both looks good and feels comfortable. Prior to co-founding Ministry of Supply, Aman spent four years in management and non-profit consulting with Deloitte and Technosphere. He holds a BSIE from Georgia Tech, half an MBA from MIT, and was a member of Forbes 30 Under 30 and BBJ's 40 Under 40 list. Before we get into it, this podcast is brought to you by Yotpo, the leading e-commerce marketing platform that's designed to increase customer engagement, promote community advocacy, and improve retention. Yotpo's single platform integrates advanced solutions for loyalty and referrals, SMS marketing, reviews, and more so brands can strengthen relationships and customers and drive meaningful metrics like AOV, LTV, CVR, and more. That's why 35,000 plus direct consumer brands use Yotpo. Start building profitable relationships with your customers today by signing up for free at yotpo.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Man, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I am in Boston, Massachusetts, and it is early in the morning. I... Uh... I've got to say, when we first had our discussion a couple of weeks ago, I used to live in Boston. Um, oh, no kidding. I didn't yeah, know where. Um, yeah, I had to go on Google Maps and try and figure out exactly where. So I was just off of Central Square. And you might recall, I don't know how long you, you, you've been in Boston, if, if it's a lifetime thing or it's more recently, but there was a bar called Kincaid's. Kincaid's. Um, not really. About- I actually... I know Central quite well, so I'm actually disappointed in myself for not knowing. Uh, not, Can- <laughs> not Cantab, right? No. So interestingly, okay. I Google mapped it. We, uh, I was uh, worked for an investment bank there called Brown Brothers Harriman. I kind of got sent over for like a uh, sort of an assignment sort of thing. And I lived across the road from the bar, but that bar is no longer there. But I believe this, this was like 2009, I think. So yeah, I think it was kind of popular back then. But unfortunately, yeah, Kincaid's is no longer with us. Oof. Yeah, but lovely part of town and yeah, yeah, generally lovely city. Come back and visit. Let me know when you do. I, I will. I will indeed. I usually like to, to, to start things by kind of doing a bit of a rewind. So I'd love to understand a little bit more uh, about the first few months of ministry supply. Can you, can you talk me through it? Yeah. Oh, man. We're, uh, we're zooming way back now. I like it. <laughs> So we, uh, you know, I, 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 going even before those first few months, uh, you know, growing up, I grew up in, in near Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, in the southeast of the United States, and uh, it was not an entrepreneurial culture or or time. You know, uh, both both were kind of fighting against me. So yeah, I was working in, in consulting after graduating undergrad engineering, and in this you know Monday to Thursday travel schedule. And really, the, the number one thing I I found in that period was how much I just despised Sundays. And it wasn't because I didn't like my job; I I quite liked uh, the firm, but it was just idea of getting on a plane Monday morning and having to pick up dry cleaning, and then packing your hotel iron. And, and as soon as you get back to the hotel on Monday night at the client site, you, you pull all these kind of Brooks Brothers clothes off and you, <laughs> you put on your gym clothes. And um, and often the analysts would kind of meet back up in the lobby and keep going in, in kind of lounge clothes. And uh, and it was so productive and everyone felt like they got all their work done between eight and midnight. 
And so with that kind of revelation in mind and my engineering toolkit in my pocket, I came to MIT in 2011 for a business degree and was just so lucky to meet my now partner, Gihan, who is, is undoubtedly smarter and better engineer than the two of us, um, <laughs> who, who he and I had both been hacking our own prototypes. I mean, what are the odds? We, we had been taking uh, strips or pieces of athletic clothing, in my case, socks, in his case, shirts, and sewing them with more formal clothing. So in my case, taking the soles of Nike socks and replacing the soles of dress socks. In his case, taking uh, the center back panel of a running shirt and replacing the center back panel of a dress shirt so that under a blazer, he could still stretch and he could be wearing this really tight fitting you know, dress shirt, but still move around. So for us, when we met, this was yeah, 2011, 2012, uh, it was just kind of a special moment of validation and saying, wait, maybe other people care about this. Maybe it's not just us. Uh, and, and that was kind of that that first few months of really kind of uh, forming our team was just on this pure joy of having somebody else who cared. And and how did the kind of like, uh, how did it go from there? How were the first few years then? Did things kind of go to plan? Did they not? Like, talk me through that. Yeah, I would say in, in some lights, yes, and some lights, no. I mean, in the light that we are still here today and, and churning and pushing, uh, I would say absolutely went to, you couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Uh, what I would say, and the lesson I like to give people in those first few years is that we we wasted a lot of time with the kind of naivety, it's bliss mindset saying, hey, we're, we're fashion outsiders. Let's kind of reject the industry and, yep. and build something entirely new. And in hindsight, I think there's something to, to be said about knowing the industry you're disrupting, right? And, and having some understanding of why everything exists and then deciding what to break. You can still be that cowboy, but, but with a, a little bit more knowledge in your back pocket might help. So you know, we spent so much time building this absolute engineering beast of a product that could just handle everything. I and mean, it still is 19 times more breathable than a traditional shirt or, or one of our marquee shirts, the Apollo. Um, you know, it, it, it regulates temperature through NASA patented materials built into the garment that are uh, forever rechargeable in the wash. And, uh, and despite all the technology, it didn't look great. You know, those first few uh, shirts off the line. And so now you can build this, you know, stunning engineering feat. But as Tesla has shown us, until uh, until it's pretty on the outside, no one really cares what's <laughs> under the hood. And so, I, I, you know, if I could give lessons to other entrepreneurs, that's the one I'd start with is just um, know the industry you're disrupting. I think there's something to be said about not necessarily being an expert, but at least being familiar. Uh, it leads me on to an, another interesting question. And I suppose you, you kind of touched on it there, like you, you're this kind of engineering science machine behind this this company but how do you guys describe it you know um is it a science company is it a fashion house is it both oh it's such a good question uh, it's one we constantly struggle with at, at the core we are absolutely a fashion company um but we're a fashion company who is taking a hard stance on differentiation and and, and that is being done using a, a scientific toolkit but ultimately we want to create is clothing that is super comfortable from a fabric standpoint feature rich from a performance standpoint, and then most of all presentable. And the only way to let all three of those coexist and be gracefully married is through science. And so that's really our toolkit more than anything. And I suppose following that theme, I'm assuming um, you guys have got a pretty involved product development process. <laughs> so at a lot of, like a high level, you know, um, can you talk me through like sort of from idea through to kind of finished product, like how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it is it is relentless. It is exhausting. I mean, if you look at the steps involved in bringing a product to market for us, it's almost, uh, you know, to a fault, long and arduous, right? And, and if, if we weren't so stubborn about this uh, theme of, of truly deeply 
tested, we'd probably have cut about half the process out. But we start with a story. We start with, with, with a brief. We start with understanding exactly what is the opportunity statement. What are we trying to change? And if that's not bulletproof, a, a lot of product concepts get shot down right there. A lot of areas that we say we want to get involved in get shot down. Um, we tend to kind of also be aware of our toolkit. So if we just see a great opportunity statement, we don't have the tools to solve it, we put it on the shelf. Um, but assuming we can create that really great uh, product story, um, we, we'll often go so far as to create the product page before the, the garment is even sketched mm. uh, and tell that story. And then we, we can be sure that like the scientific method, we're starting with a, with a problem statement, right? And kind of how do we mirror that in fashion? Um, from there, it goes into what I would call somewhere around 18 months of toiling. Uh, that's everything from pure design, true fashion design, all the way through our, our development process. Our ratio of design to development resources is one to two. So you can get the sense that we are development heavy, right? We're looking to create very simple, elegant, timeless designs. The 50% of your closet, you are 80% of the time. But focus all of our energy and attention on what we call the magic details. So first and foremost, what is that fabric? Um, in most cases, we work with the mill to co-develop something that's absolutely perfect for the use case. And then those magic details, stuff like comfort soft, stretchy waistbands and, and dress pants that you wouldn't, where you wouldn't expect it. Laser perforations in garments to allow heat to be released where you wouldn't expect it. Um, everything all the way down to a, a microcomputer chip in the lapel of our heated jacket or coffee beans and the fibers of our socks. So you can see across the board, uh, that development toolkit has to be wide to solve a wide range of problems. Um, from there, we, we go into uh, a, a constant cycle, a repetitive cycle of, of build, test, build, test, build, test. And those tests are quite wild. I mean, they simulate years of use in just a few days. So we can simulate, let's say three years of machine washing in just a few hours, actually. Uh, well, maybe a few days if you actually stretch it all out. So in that way, what we wanna do is make sure that we see what this product would look like two, three years after purchase if used absolutely relentlessly before we put it on the shelf. And if it doesn't pass any of our tests, we come back to the drawing board and start back over. So that process can be exhausting. It can have so many false starts, so many resets. Um, and if it wasn't our bread and butter, we'd probably have given up on it by now. <laughs> But at the end of that, you come out with something quite stunning that we're just yeah. feeling is, you know, this incredible confidence, this bulletproof um, uh, confidence that, that a customer would gain the joy that we predicted, you know, maybe up up to two years earlier. Uh, and assuming that problem statement hasn't changed materially, that uh, that garment would answer that question. So that may be more, more than you bargained for with the question, but hopefully a helpful <laughs> illustration. No, no, it's fascinating. And, and I wonder, like, along that journey, do, do you have, like, suppliers that you guys work with and like how does how does that kind of work is that like a highly vetted process do you have like a small ecosystem of like partners that you you kind of collaborate with how does that work yeah exactly so we've got i mean i keep on coming back to this word toolkit right which is this idea that we continue to use uh, a group of people fabrics tools technologies that we have grown to rely on and at the same time as we're using those we're also expanding them and so for us, that, that process is, is as, as the development process, the, the partner selection process is iterative. Sometimes we find a magical partner. We want to put all of our eggs in that basket. And sometimes we find a partner that's just good at one thing and we want to find out where they might plug in now or in the future. Um, so building that kind of toolkit of partners and, and technologies is really half the battle in the starting point. And I suppose following the, the, the same um, th theme here, I noticed that, you know, a, a part of the, the mission is to provide a balance of scientifically backed comfort and convenience wherever the day takes you. So 
I'm curious. I think I might know the answer, but I'd love to understand, like, do you ever have a bit of a conflict there? Like, do you have to make a choice between science and convenience? And like, how do you go about that? Yeah, you know, early on, I think we used to very much think of it that way. It was this trade-off. It was, does it look good or, you know, form or function, right? Left brain, right brain, emotion or rational. We felt like it was a trade-off and you were trying to find this perfect balance where you didn't give up on either one too heavily. And uh, over time, we found that they could actually have the opposite effect. They could be multipliers. I mean, an easy example I like to give is a, a, a very simple example is that a dress shirt that has quite a bit of stretch and, and room where you want it, but, but uh, tailored where, you, where you'd like it as well actually allows you to look sharper and be more comfortable so in that yeah. case you might wear a better fitting shirt rather than you know for a long time people were wearing these big balloony dress shirts as a small example but by allowing that shirt to have the stretch you, you were able to gain the range of motion and the aesthetic that you wanted uh, and that for us is you know that's just one example we can bring that example to our fusion terry sweat shorts right it doesn't have to be just formal items but how can the two actually feed off of each other is the question not how can they be at odds so um, a, a term that I was kind of aware of before, but certainly uh, picked up on um, as, as I was researching for our chat, um, and that is work leisure. I'd love to understand from your perspective, like how would you describe it? And then how has kind of the last 18 months changed or accelerated the, the adoption of, of this category? Yeah, you know, I think there's a term that actually we, we had a good New York Times profile a few months ago. I think it was a term they bestowed upon us. And we embraced and we said, great, uh, we yep. like it. We think that sounds like a, a good idea. And uh, and for us, it was really, that, that's been the, the, the theory for the last nine years, right? So for us, that's not been a new idea. I mean, we, we, in a lot of ways, have been preparing for a post-pandemic dress code for almost a decade without knowing it. And this idea of a workplace that may change on, an, on, a, on a moment's notice, a workplace that may be home, coffee shop, office, or commuting in between. Um, and this idea of kind of this hybrid work style requires a new dress code and that dress code we think is work leisure. And so for us, that perspective actually hasn't changed. We just happen to have a nine year head start. <laughs> and what were you seeing nine years ago? Cause it, it sounds like maybe back to your consulting mm -hmm. days, you were seeing it then, you know, there was this like mix of, of work and after work kind of melding into one is, was it, was that the kind of like Genesis of, of some of these ideas going all the way back to that time? Yeah, I mean, we actually set my partner, Gian Seta, and he and his wife actually both set Guinness World Records for fastest half marathon in a suit. Um, this was in 2016 or 17. And uh, and we, we used it to really point that even if you don't plan to run a half marathon in your suit, you should be able to. And the, and the idea that this kind of tested for extreme comfort and extreme circumstances was so important. Um, and we wanted to make sure that even if you didn't, even if you just came inside of your desk all day, just got up a few times to go to the bathroom, grab lunch, whatever it was, that you felt this kind of comfort and confidence saying, I'm not going to get something like sweat stains. I'm not going to be kind of constricted. I'm not going to be dying to get home and taking this stuff off. All of that kind of factored in your psyche, whether you were moving between four different work locations or just sitting at a desk. In either case, your clothing has a dramatic, often subconscious impact on your psyche and joy. And if we could alleviate that, we felt, why wouldn't we? And so it just, it, it, it kind of, it, it worked, you know, in an interesting way to our favor and, and everybody learning at once that comfort could drive joy and productivity. And, uh, and, and they, the whole world learned that all at once while they were working from home <laughs> for the last 18 months. Yeah, it's slightly unfortunate. It took a, you know, rather sizable 
um, world event for that to happen, isn't it? It is. We would absolutely, just for the record, have preferred that not to happen. <laughs> um, but if, if, if one is looking for silver linings, I think something that we learned in coming out of it is how to prioritize that, that joy, uh, that productivity. So uh, I don't want to dwell too much on the last 18 months because there is a plethora of content and literature and podcasts and whatever out there about you know, COVID. But I'd love to sort of switch gears slightly and from your perspective, um, learn a little bit more about what you've seen um, and how you've adapted to your kind of customer engagement over the last um, year and a half. Have you guys been heavy on acquisition? Has it been retention? Like how has that kind of played out? Yeah, you know, I think we we found over over the course of like eighteen months, we changed a lot, right? Not not just you know, yes, we were certainly on the work leisure path the entire time, but that meant we still have to embrace even a wider aperture of styles. And you know, doing so, we launched gym clothing. Soon, we're going to launch a, a home a duvet for your bed. You know, we're launching boxers, right? So our aperture of, of products widened to allow for a kind of full twenty four hour clock of where you could be wearing Ministry of Supply products. And so in doing so, you know, over the course of the pandemic and masks, uh, you know, being a big part of that story as well, we, we were heavy acquisition, mode. we were bringing on new people at a, at a remarkable clip for a company whose, whose market product market fit had been compromised. Um, so I think we were 18 months in of, of acquisition and, and only in the last uh, two months have we realized, wait a second, let's not abandon the folks that, that got us here. Let's come back and put that emphasis back on retention marketing. So I think we're trying to rebuild our own funnel and saying and re-entering high growth mode for the first time in two years. You have to put your balanced funnel hat back on. Remember that it's not just about finding new people that like your new stuff, but uh, re- remembering the uh, the folks that that again got you there in the first place, and thinking about how do you nurture and build those relationships so that people come to you first when they're looking for a new blank. And those those kind of like I'd love to just touch on that those, those kind of like um, uh, previous customers. Have you found that having a really clear purpose and you guys are very impact driven? Like, does that help with with customer loyalty and brand advocacy? And like, how how do you sort of build and nurture those those kind of relationships? Yeah, well, we, we think we think that actually, you know, in terms of being a responsible company, right? What does that mean for us? It has two pillars, right? Um, it has the, the, the carbon planetary impact pillar, which is, is genuinely just using uh, tools like 3D printing, recycled materials, yeah. uh, better end of life care, and more durable garments, uh, fewer, better mentality. Um, and of course, achieving for us last year, net carbon neutrality was kind of the goal there. And the second part of that being what we call starter kits. And we do that for both adults and children. And the adults section is giving away clothing to anyone who needs it. I mean, if you walk into our Boston store right now and said, Hey, I just, I need a new outfit. I got an interview tomorrow, but I can't afford it. They'll get you outfitted for free with no questions asked. Uh, and we've done that thousands and thousands of times over the years. Um, really we have cool. a similar program for kid for kids with a scientific exploration box that we're expanding upon over the next couple of years. And then doing both of those, um, uh, you know, kind of what, what, what we would call modern day CSR, which is, we would call it a soul, which has to be authentic and can't just be writing checks. Um, it, it, I, we think has a tremendous effect on you know, three groups, right? Not just our community, of course, first, um, our own team and our motivation, excitement to be engaged in the work that we're doing and the impact it can have beyond our customers. And then absolutely the third bucket being where you started this question, which is our customers. Um, they love being along for this journey. They think it's wonderful and thrilling and they identify with it. If they don't, they leave. And we think that's okay. If this is not a mission that they're interested in being a part of, 
they can also self-identify on the way out, which actually helps start targeting even more. So yeah, yeah, exactly. that way, uh, you know, we, we say that, you know, someone figuring out they're not a customer is almost as valuable as someone's figuring out they are. Um, and, and a soul is a really quick way to, to accelerate that uh, decision. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's like a very unique perspective. I've not heard that a lot from direct-to-consumer brands. I think that the, the, the natural lean is to... Um, throw another retention strategy at them yeah 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 and i suppose just just picking up on that do you guys think because you are quite a unique company that 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 it allows you to to have those sorts of slightly unique ways of of thinking about things as opposed to maybe um a a a more traditional direct consumer fashion brand yeah you know i think we we like to say we're, we're playing to win not not playing not to lose right um and that's a mentality that our team and investors have to embrace right and saying you're going to take some risks in there you know we're, we're launching a big campaign here pretty soon to um bring in donations for afghan refugees that will be landing on u.s shores now or in the near future yep and there's some polarizing opinions on that and and we're going to live with the consequences and the upsides of being able to do what we think is right for our community so and that way you do have to have a you know, a, an ecosystem that is tolerant, in fact, encouraging of taking such stances that you feel strongly about, right? Not authenticity then shows right through to the person who is the rightful recipient of that, both on the receiving end of a donation, but also on the customer side, someone who identifies with that mission. I'll get on to the funding piece in a minute, because I'd love to explore that in a little bit more detail. But I, um, I recently saw a business of fashion article and it suggested that there's like a new four P's of marketing and it's a pyramid of purpose, positioning, partnerships and personalization. I wanted to know what your take on that is and how do you think you might fit into that mix? Yeah, I I love, oh God, I love good marketing playbooks. I love good four P's. (laughs) Um, The one that I glommed onto that we haven't really talked about is positioning too, right? And saying, you know, it's an increasingly dense marketplace of people who are trying to outfit this new dress code. Yeah. Um, and it's one that we, you know, I think for a long time we were playing in what we thought was a blue ocean, right? There were not a lot of people shouting from the rooftops, you know, ditch the business casual. It was not a common or, or popular stance. We were facing quite a few headwinds. Um, but recently with, with this new dress code, those tailwinds have come back. But with the tailwinds comes a red ocean. Mm. Other people that want to jump on those tailwinds as well. And so I think for us having to be a lot more careful and cautious about announcing our market position, announcing where we stand relative to competitors has become an increasingly great priority for us. In fact, just yesterday, our team was discussing how do we start to include, uh, you know, market norms or incumbents in our marketing? Do we show how our products stack up against others, right? We've used some statistics against generics like 19 times more breathable. What if we publish that research? What if we show what that actually looks like and let our customer in on that comparison so they understand the differences? Does that let our engineering prowess uh, shine in a way that it can't in an isolation? And is that just just picking up on that then? So are you guys seeing more of that? I, I assume that that's where things are going because I don't know, athleisure brands, they're starting to maybe get to the, the, the peak of their product rollout and they're starting to look at you know slightly sideways categories like a work leisure area yeah. are you seeing yeah. more of that coming from 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 other sort of athleisure brands or, or bigger brands you know what i say was we're seeing parts of that coming um and why i say that is we think there's these five pillars and i'll go on my quick speech here we think these five pillars of, of work leisure and we think it's really important that all five are checked to create and define this new you know this new industry this new category and so we feel like there are many folks who are attacking one two sometimes even three of these pillars 
but rarely, if ever, have we seen even a product that scratches all five, let alone a company or a brand who holistically approaches all five. And I can quickly rattle through them. I've talked about them already a bit here, but uh, comfortable, and we're talking usually in fabrics. Yep. Feature-rich, we're talking in make and ease of care. And the third would be presentable, and which is the hardest to check if you hit the first two. Uh, the fourth would be durable, uh, and that takes that relentless testing, simulating years of use in our lives before it hits your doorstep. And the fifth would be responsible, and that's one that we feel like has to be an, an imperative to enter this category, which a lot of the bigger players are kind of struggling and playing from behind. So if you don't have all five of those, we don't think of it as work leisure. And in that case, we can kind of show that comparison more proudly and, and uh, let our customers in on that and uh, that definition. That's really interesting. I think we could add that to the to the four Ps. <laughs> That's a, right. Yeah, we need to make a, a, a better alliteration here. But. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a good acronym in that somewhere. <laughs> um, so uh, switching gears ever so slightly, um, we, we, we touched on it the other day when we had a quick chat, um, and I know you guys are early adopters of Headless. Um, I'd love to understand a little bit more about your e-com tech stack journey. Can you kind of talk me through it? Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> So we started, uh, like many did, this is 2013, launching our first website on Shopify. It was kind of the go-to. It was the you know, basic, uh, I would not say feature-rich at the time. It was just to get a site up quickly without having to code it yourself. It's cool. Um, but a couple of years in, we were kind of convinced by a lot of folks that Magento was what you needed to do if you were going to be a north of a million dollar business, which at that point, I should think we were. Um, uh, you had to go to Magento. And it, you know Shopify was effectively kind of Etsy brands only. Um, and, uh, and it turns out that wasn't right. We made the move. Um, we went through a number of Magento Gold developers only to find that they were uh, not scratching itches we needed and the turnover was massive and the, and the confidence at the time, maybe things have changed, was not what we needed to be of, that, uh, of this development team. So um, we then rewrote everything, switched back to Shopify. This was 2017 or so. And it turned out Shopify had caught up and, and become quite a feature-rich op uh, option. Um, and then about two years ago, we got the itch again. We said, we love Shopify, but hey, we have so much content flowing through. We don't care about complex pricing rules. We don't care about yep. you know, crazy uh, algorithms that you might get in a, more, in a, you know, a deeper cart solution. But we do have a tremendous amount of content that we need to you know, keep track of. So why don't we look at a CMS and go headless? So 2019, we made that switch and, and we're quite grateful we did and that the site today is you know, better converting and, and, and aesthetically looks and works better than it ever has before. And we are excited about what the next two years will bring and, and we'd, we'd love to stay in touch with you and your team to kind of keep that in <laughs> mind. But for now, it feels like we've got the best of both, right? We've got this really uh, rich content management system merged with this beautiful, stunning, you know, first-in-class, best-in-class shopping cart in Shopify. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, like your journey is kind of a a great um, snapshot of the the ecom platform market over the last you know seventy yeah, We're not years. alone. Yeah, 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 no, no, you're not alone. Yeah, we also talked about the other day. Just we touched on it ever ever so slightly, but it's a bit of a uh, a sidestep topic. But but this idea of greenwashing, which is pretty uh, um, talked about, I suppose uh, at this point in time. Like, what 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 do you guys think about it? Do you think it's is it, is it better that people are being exposed to the idea of consciousness or conscious consumerism, et cetera? Or do you think it's dangerous that companies are potentially piggybacking uh, these ideas for their own gain? Yeah, you know, I, I'm generally of a more forgiving mindset when it comes to good intent. Um, so in that way, even if we don't think the execution is right and we can be critical of, of each other and peers and, and the industry on what we call greenwashing and techniques to kind of suggest responsibility and, and climate consciousness that, that aren't actually having the impact that may be stated or marketed. 
um, perhaps that marketing message is outpacing the actual reality. But even in that case, I'm sympathetic to saying at least the intent is good. The only wrong answer is not addressing it or attacking this question at all. Not acknowledging or denying it is, is going to cause the problem to get much worse. In fact, fool consumers into a, a sense of confidence that we're all okay. And so in that way, I think we're critical of, of anybody not doing anything, but we're, uh, but we're encouraging of folks that are doing something and just need to uh, find a better way to do it. Uh, so in that way, we think there's a more scientific approach. Um, but we we uh, we want to help the world find it uh, and 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 understand it better. That's yeah, that's an interesting take. And I um I wonder, sort of like following on that theme and getting back to some of the other uh, concepts we talked about earlier. But I, like, who do you guys look to for inspiration? Um, is it people? Is it other brands? Um, where do you look for that sort of thing? Yeah, you know, I think what we found is that by, by trying to narrow that question down to one answer, we'd always be placing a chasing game. Um, so instead, what we've done is actually kind of create idols in each of those five pillars I went through earlier. So for instance, are responsible. We think Patagonia is doing a wonderful job. I mean, they were the ones that taught us about the dangers of uh, PFAS before, you know, the market really knew about it. So you find that, you know, idol in each one of those pillars, then go for it, right? So from a performance standpoint, we love to look at uh, Under Armour and Lululemon. They've really just done a wonderful job. From a presentable standpoint, there are more idols than I can suggest. There are a lot of people making great looking clothing. And so to that end, we think there's a ton of players out there that are excelling in one of those pillars. And if we can idolize them in that pillar only, we can then focus on building this first and class stack of pillars that defines more future category. wanted to switch gears slightly again <laughs> and you guys have been doing this for more than 10 years so I'd, I'd love to understand what still surprises you oh man you know i think to, to say that we weren't caught off guard by the pandemic in general would be a, a lie i think uh um, in general we are constantly surprised by what kind of wrenches can get thrown at us and how we can kind of end up getting in our own way or or, or outside scenarios can get in our own way but uh, in terms of, of what surprises constantly, we we love this idea of, kind of super customers and seeing how they act, behave, and think. Um, and we're so grateful for folks that turn over their entire closet in our favor. I think you know while that's the intent of the clothing, it's meant to work nicely together. It's meant to build on the system. I think we're still just every day. I mean, I get I speak to five to ten customers per day, um, and every time one of those emails just says, "Here's what I did to my wardrobe. Here's what I did you know, to overturn from." you know, 100% not ministry supply to 100% ministry supply, it still surprises us. I mean, I think as as kind of first-time entrepreneurs that, that didn't know that this was an option, you know, nine years ago, uh, to get that kind of an email is just a, a wonderful and pleasant surprise. It reminds us why we do it. That's so cool. So so you, you as super customer, is that the definition or is it kind of like a general VIP sort of type um, person? Yeah, we like to try to measure it in terms of closet share, right? So we're thinking if, if this is somebody who's kind of betting on us, we want to bet on them, right? So yeah. it's a cohort of customers we've identified who, you know, are, are you know, when something is launched, they will buy it. They have built an inherent trust in our brand, not a specific trust in a specific product. And, and by doing so, have identified themselves in our definitions and algorithms as a super customer. It's a customer that we want to retain, nurture, and build, right? And often on a one-on-one -on -one basis, it's why, you know, Tens of thousands of them have my personal cell phone number uh, and many of them use it, right? Um, all of them can email me and directly and get an answer usually within a few hours. And so in that way, we think building these kind of one-on-one -on -one nurturing relationships across you know, thousands of people is possible. 
if that's what you prioritize. That's so interesting. And so was that something that you guys had kind of thought about prior to, to, to beginning? Or is that something that sort of like evolved organically, you know, by the virtue of being a, a startup, a challenger, you know, you, you kind of have a small community that you start with and you kind of grow with them? Yeah, I mean, as, as, as engineers, my background, our, our mind always goes to numbers. So early on, <laughs> we kind of developed this playbook we called Quantified Empathy, and we still very much use and embrace it. But it's this idea of taking customer sentiment and feeding it back into design sentiment. And so with, by quantifying, you know, this sentiment, you know, by being able to say not just I heard one person say X, but I've repeatedly heard Y, you can be sure that the inputs you put back in the system are, uh, are good and relevant and, and, and not just a local minority. And so we found time and time again that uh, it was important to kind of let the right feedback bubble up instead of just listening to the vocal minority. And it's very much a part of the scientific method because this iteration requires data. So I suppose following on from the kind of like what surprised or continues to surprise you over the last decade, I'd love to sort of take a, a, a look back and understand like what's the best decision you guys have made and what do you think has not been the best decision you've made? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I think I went through the not best earlier, right, which was kind of trying to play the outsider game and in doing so, uh, losing out on the beauty of this industry was was kind of an early mistake that I often come back to and think the fashion industry is one to be embraced and it's, it's stunning and exists for a reason and mm-hmm. helps to, you know, drive emotional states and identities in a way that, you know, very few other industries can claim. Um, in, in terms of best, I think, uh, you know, I'd come back to 18 months ago and kind of betting on this not going away um, and betting on this, I wouldn't say not going away from a, from a, a contagion standpoint, but not going away from a, what do we like, right? What drives joy? It's hybrid work style is here to stay. And I think we were fortunate, you know, probably by May to acknowledge that this would cause a long-term change and, and you know, uh, upended our content and product development strategy to adjust and kind of micro-tune our approach accordingly. And so I think in that way, we're now still seeing the fruits of that labor with, you know, products launching this month that are so relevant to the time because we made that decision 18 months ago. So interesting. Uh, it's usually one of my favorite questions to ask people is that kind of like, yeah, retrospective, you know, decision-making type concept. I suppose following on from that though, and getting back to, to something I said earlier, I'd love to understand a little bit about your, your funding journey. Can you, can you talk me through that? And I may maybe even pick up on the kind of what you said about like um, getting the right investors on board and some of the kind of like decision-making you've had to do and then their reactions and how you kind of dealt with, 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 with them. In, in, you said our investors, yeah, I missed the, the operative word that you said our investors. Yes. Yeah. It's been interesting. We, we, uh, you know, one of the questions we were asked in that New York Times profile was kind of why would your investors be sticking with you? You know, you're a company whose relevance was marginalized severely overnight and indefinitely. Um, why would, why would, what, what is their continued interest? And we took a bridge round of financing during the pandemic. Why are they writing, you know, six, seven figure checks? And uh, and we asked them that you know, what, what, you know <laughs> we're not going to pitch we're not going to pitch you 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 give us your product what have you, you you all have seen you know a number of companies you've seen a number of decades of, of ups and downs what is your take and their answer to us which we've adopted and, and should have thought of ourselves was if you were to start a company right now why wouldn't it be this right we know there's yeah. a new dress code emerging uh, we understand that after all this you know the dust settles the world will have changed irreversibly why not bet on a company who's, who's betting on that. Right. And this idea that, you know, and, and happens to just have nine years of practice. Yeah. And so I think 
they're, I would say beyond patience, uh, I think they were probably accelerated and more excited um, thinking about what the new opportunity that came, the tailwinds that would now be behind us. I'd love to switch gears again ever so slightly and and just talk about like you, you, how you and, and Giham work. Like, what do you think is the kind of um, keys to the successful relationship that you guys have? Um, and how do you guys, do, do you define roles? Was it done beforehand? Has it evolved every time? All that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's evolved. I think that the simplest way to kind of explain is that we like to come back to is saying, complementary skill sets, but absolutely overlapping value sets. Mm. Um, and that seems to be the magic formula to say general sentiment, um, how you think about, uh, you know, uh, building a team or a culture, how you think about uh, attacking the market, how you react to challenging situations. Those are all where value shine, but it's the you know, complementary skill sets is where you can really hit a, a hit the gas on divide and conquer, right. With, with little overlap that, that should naturally exist, uh, handoffs, but, beyond that really embracing this idea of, of divide and conquer and and was that something that was like quite immediate when you guys kind of first met or is that kind of built over time i think the bounds of that have been evolving over time um as we all you know pr progress grow and learn uh but i would say conceptually now that really hasn't changed i think it's a, a quite a stroke of luck um we're kind of coming up to around the 40 minute mark so i think we would um it'd be a good idea to sort of start rounding out the conversation. So I'd like to sort of start looking forward a little bit <laughs> uh, and pose one sort of hypothetical question before we do that. So what would you be doing if you weren't running Ministry of Supply rather? I, I, I come back to this often, uh, working for a company who was doing the same thing. <laughs> I know that's a, maybe a, a bit of a, a dodge of an answer, but the, the general premise we, we come back to, we go back to now, you know, nine or 10 years and saying, we were not necessarily coming at this from uh, let's be entrepreneur standpoint. It was, I, I really want to wear this clothing. Uh, it was very much a, you know, and if it doesn't exist, then, then uh, we need to make it. And if it does exist, then we should just go work for whoever's making it. And, uh, and it wasn't necessarily about kind of a, a desire for, you know, an, an entrepreneurial journey. It was much more about making this specific product. Um, and so if, if, if we weren't doing this, I think, the natural answer would be to find out who is the second best and go work for them. How long do you think that would last before you'd be, I think we're going to start our own <laughs> thing here. <laughs> we did. I think everyone gets itchy uh, no matter where you are. But, uh, yeah. I, 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 I've got a sense that you guys would get itchy and the, I, I think this would be uh, created no matter what, maybe, even if that was the case. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe that's more of a testament to stubbornness than, uh, than vision, but fair <laughs> Um, and I suppose, you know, what does Ministry of Supply look like in, in 2023? Yeah, oh, we just went through this exercise, so I have so many good answers for you. But, um, you know, we, we come back to really doubling down on this 100% trust and 100% and pillars, right? And I keep on coming back to this and saying, there are some really special things in, you know, in the next couple of years you'll see and kind of really blowing out this, um, we call it absolute control of heat and temperature or heat and moisture. Mm -hmm. um, through our, what we call our mercury operating system that we, we brought to market a couple of years ago with the mercury jacket um, and expanding that system out and kind of pushing the bounds and what technology and clothing can do when they truly coexist. But at the simplest level, really, we want to just be the 50% of the closet you wear 80% of the time. And that uh, the, the, the work to, to do to, to get to that point has changed so dramatically um, that our best bet is continuing to lead the way and define what work leisure means. 
embrace it and show people how that kind of system of thinking can actually be more than some of its parts. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Man, thank you so much for joining me. I cannot thank you enough, Tim. Thanks for having me. There you go. Massive thank you to Aman for joining me. You can check them out at ministryofsupply.com. Before I go, a quick word for my sponsor, Yotpo, the leading e-commerce marketing platform to increase customer engagement, promote community advocacy, and improve retention. If you want to learn more, go visit them at yotpo.com slash your basket is empty. As always, if you like the episode, please review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time.